All right. Let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for this time that you've granted us to be in your word this morning and afternoon for those who are listening from afar. We pray that the Lord will teach us the matter of Christ as you proclaimed him in the different sermons that you recorded for us in types and shadows of the Old Testament. We honor you for the Holy Spirit who opens our understanding. We pray that he teaches us the truth of Christ. We honor you, Lord, for life and all the blessing that you've given us even in this temporary existence, provision of food and shelter and clothing, friends and family. Lord, this is all by your doing. We honor you, glorify you in all things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good morning again, and happy Father's Day to everybody who has been given the burden, <laughs> and some who have applied for the burden. And we're thinking Sean's coming away, but you're already a father, okay? You're a husband, and in many ways, you have taken over the fatherhood. So God be praised, and you too, Paul, Grandpa, everybody who is listening. This morning we are back to the Old Testament, First Samuel chapter 5, the Philistines and the Ark of God, First Samuel chapter 5, and this, this is what was recorded for us. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us and Dagon our God. Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of of the God of Israel, and they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of the God of Israel away. So it was after they had carried away that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a great destruction, and destruct the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. Therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron. So it was as the ark of God came to Ekron that the 
Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the man who did not die was stricken with the tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. And that is the word of the Lord. You have just heard it for yourself that the Philistines used to live in Akron, Ohio. <laughs> we have to title this our message. What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And the shortened version of that is the problem with the ark. The problem with the ark. And I'm going to say greetings to one and all. It's good to be back. And I pray that you have given ear to the message that I shared in Tennessee last weekend at Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church from the story of the woman who was caught in adultery. The message titled, What Says Thou? I think that is probably our fourth or so installment of the same message. We keep adding, or the Lord keeps adding a little bit of nuggets to what we already know. What says thou? What says the Christ, what says Jesus, is the only thing that matters. And none is able to override or reverse his judgment on anything. And he says to his people, neither do I condemn thee in spite of your present experience with sin. For the woman that was her present experience, she was caught in adultery. And Jesus comes and say, neither do I condemn thee, I never condemned you. You are a righteous person, even as things are happening to you and with you, you are a righteous person. That's scandalous. Very, very, very scandalous. And that is a very wonderful story and presentation of law and grace. Fundamentally, the supremacy of Christ, the supremacy of grace over law, that grace is greater than law, Christ is greater than Moses, and greater than our sin. And God used such examples of the Rehabs, of the woman caught in adultery, just to show and give us the offense of the gospel for what it is, that it is really very offensive to call a woman whose business is halotry a righteous woman. And to honor her so much as to put her 
in the Hebrews Hall of Faith. Rehab is there, not as Sister Rehab the Nun, but Rehab the Hallowed. <laughs> and this morning, if the Lord would grant us understanding, we are back in First Samuel. And that means we'll take a short break from Romans and pack for a few minutes. That is a number of messages in the Old Testament. We love to tell the story of Christ from both Testaments because the story is the same. It testifies of the one person and the one message. It is just written or presented differently. In the Old Testament, it is mostly in story form, in shadows, in pictures. And so we lean heavily on the light of the New Testament to figure out the shadows. You can't read the Old Testament with understanding if you do not understand the teaching of the New. The New is what you use as your grid, as your lens to understand the Old Testament. So it is important for us to know and understand the gospel revelation of the New. That is why we have spent the past few years in the book of John and now in the book of Romans and Galatians and Hebrews. And having said that, I want to say, this is how God works his gospel in the old, among other doctrinal matters. He comes and presents a theological point, either of law or gospel, in story form. But that story will not be exhaustive of all that is to be known or understood about the doctrine, either of law or of the gospel. The gospel, as I have said, has many angles. It has many vantage points because of the complexity of the matter, because of who we are dealing with, we are dealing with God. It is simple in that the whole matter of salvation is of Christ alone. That's the simplicity of the gospel. But it does have a lot of moving parts. Thus, he will bring a different story and a different angle to the understanding of both law and gospel. He took the children of Israel into slavery in Egypt just to preach the matter of law and gospel. He could have just given us Romans 1 <laughs> all the way to chapter 8. No, he says, no, I'm going to give you 430 years of practical teaching. And so one has to go with the flow and have a very flexible mind and a proper hermeneutic, a proper way of reading the stories. But then in the matter of understanding, it comes down to God's gift to be able to see these things. You need God's gift to see it as I need God's gift to see it. The gift does not just end with me 
If I have the gift and you don't have it, you won't receive it. So it takes God to cause you and I to understand what he's saying. I'm just being used as a vessel to bring the message, but we need the same Holy Spirit. We need the same gift. We need the same eyes to say, Amen, I see it. So none can receive or see these things unless it is given them from above. And that's why it's important in the matter of preparation, when you're listening to messages, reading the Bible, you have to ask God to help you with understanding. Pray even two seconds. Help me, Lord, pray for yourself before a message, even after a message. Lord, thank you for what you gave me today. I pray for more understanding. Help me to see how these things connect. And much of the connections also you see, they come when you're even doing laundry, driving to work, you're working, working with a patient, whatever you do, just some theological point comes and the light goes on. It's God teaching. Okay? So in our last message from First Samuel, we have a very good message, wonderful message. Because we always talk about Christ. <laughs> in our last message from First Samuel, we spoke of the end of the law. And you know by now that this is a matter that many professing Christians do not like to hear talked about. They do not want to hear that Moses is dead. This is a serious matter. And because of their unbelief, it's unbelief that causes them. It's not that they are being theologically smart or what, no. The Bible calls it unbelief. Because of the unbelief, they will come up with false accusations of antinomianism to say you are anti-law even though they have never met you in your life. They don't even know where you live. But they come to the conclusion that you must hate God's law because they are saying Christ alone is enough. Grace alone is enough. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Apostle Paul says, one who still has not seen the sufficiency and exclusiveness of Christ alone in all things salvation and is still laboring under the law, laboring under Moses, they still have a veil on their heart. A veil is covering their heart that causes them not to see the passing of the law, the passing of the glory of the law. In other words, God is yet to remove the veil from their hearts for them to see the truth. Yes, they go to church. Yes, they have a lot of theological books, but they are yet to learn from God. This is not about their learning. It's not about their learning in the flesh. It's about God revealing the truth to them. So let's go to 2 Corinthians 3. We are developing our message. 2 Corinthians 3, beginning at verse 12. The apostle says, Therefore, since we have such a hope, 
in Christ. The ministry of the Spirit. The ministry that does not condemn us. We behave with great boldness. And not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from staring at the result of the glory that was made ineffective. Moses, after he had talked to God on Mount Sinai, would put a veil on his face because he would be shining with some glory. And God is saying, no, that was preaching something. Moses had some glory, but the glory of Moses, after a few days, it would wane out. It would go away. It was passing. And Paul says God was preaching the passing of the glory of the Lord. Verse 14. But their minds were closed for to this very day, to this very day, even now, to this very day in the time of Paul, and to this very day even in our time, the same veil remains when they hear the old covenant read, it has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. It has not been removed. It does not say they will remove it themselves after diligent study. No, God has to remove it. And God has not removed the veil. But until this very day, whenever Moses is read, whenever we talk law, a veil lies over their minds for them not to see Christ, not to believe that the redeemed are not under the law. Whenever they hear law, they're thinking, oh, but Paul Martin has to be an antinomian. <laughs> but when one turns to the Lord, see the transition, the veil is removed. When God brings one to the truth of Christ, they see clearly that they cannot be under Moses. The death of Moses, the death of the law, is very pervasive teaching in the Old Testament. The law anticipated its own death. It anticipated its own retirement because something greater was coming to succeed it. Even Moses himself said to Israel, God is going to raise another prophet and you must hear him. Hear that prophet. Don't listen to me. Hear that prophet. And God in the time of Eli continued to rehearse this truth in the testimony of Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were priests of the Most High God, and also the same testimony with his daughter-in-law. Eli's sons got involved in some serious mischief, in some serious shenanigans, in the matter of the handling of the work of the priestly ministry. And God came and spoke to boy Samuel and told him that he was going to come, that God was going to come and perform a work that would amaze everyone in Israel because the sons of Eli were causing his people to transgress, which is the purpose of the law 
the law causes people to transgress. It does not restrain sin. He said, the ears are going to tingle when they hear what I'm going to do. He would come and judge the house of Eli because Eli had failed to restrain his two sons from their sins. As I said, the law only can increase sin. That's Pauline teaching. And in the judgment, God said, there would not be an old man left in the house of Eli. No old man left in the house of Eli. First Samuel 2, verse 31. In fact, the Lord says, the days are coming when I will remove your strength and the strength of your father's house. There will not be an old man in your house. The strength of your father's house, Eli was a Levite. Levites were the mediators of the law. So Eli had no strength in himself as a human being, as a man. That's not what God was talking about. The strength or power was in reference to the power of the office that he held. The power of the law as represented in Eli as a Levitical priest. And God said, in the days that were coming, that is looking to the days of the appearance of Christ Jesus that would be the fulfillment of those days. The strength of the law to condemn would be removed. In other words, God would justify his people by a different priesthood. And God said, in 1 Samuel 3, verse 14, and therefore, I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. In other words, the death of Christ was not to be a restoration of the law back to its throne. Not by sacrifice, but the sacrifice is Christ. And God is saying, when the Christ has come, his atonement is not for bringing his people back under Moses. It is not to bring the law back to where it used to be. But a removal from his throne by way of fulfillment. And this matter is not understood in much of the reformed writings, hence the talk of the third use of the law, law for sanctification, you antinomian and all that. It's just unbelief and lack of understanding. God said to Eli, you failed to restrain your two sons from sin, and yet it was God who did not grant them repentance from sin. He alone has power to grant repentance. But the text of 1 Samuel tells us 
why God did not grant them repentance. He desired to put them to death. First Samuel 2.25, I told you the last time when we were in this text that this has to be highlighted text because it's very important in the matter of repentance. This is what was recorded in First Samuel 2.25. Eli speaking to his two sons, he says, If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who shall intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of the father because the Lord desired to kill them. Nevertheless, they did not hear the gospel. If you want to spin it that way, nevertheless, they did not receive the testimony of Christ because God desired to condemn them. And that is to say, a person repents not because they made a good decision or they felt bad about something that they did. They repent only because God did not, did not already desire to condemn them. So your repentance is evidence that God did not want to destroy you. Otherwise, he would just have left you in your foolishness and ignorance of the truth. If God does not desire your salvation, you cannot repent. It does not matter how long one hears the truth. And yet, God still made Eli and his sons responsible for something that he nor his sons had no power to stop. Eli had no power to stop things. Their sons, his sons had no power to stop what they were doing. And yet he made them responsible for something that they could not stop doing. And one cannot appreciate the point unless they have a good view of God's sovereignty, absolute sovereignty, in that God makes one responsible for something that they have no power to do or to do otherwise. People say, oh yeah, men have free will. No, free will to do what? (laughs) We must appreciate this point. That for us to turn to Christ as has happened was a gift. And it was by the power of God. It was by the grace and mercy of God. And that means the best evidence of salvation is faith and dependence to Christ. That is the impossible thing to do. Everything else I can tell you to stop. I can tell you to bring 90% of your income, you will do it. I can tell you to do some crazy stuff and you do it. But you cannot come and say, Christ alone is my righteousness. That's impossible. So that is the evidence of salvation. And yet many minimize that truth. Because they want to talk about themselves. And their measly righteousness. Their filthy rags of righteousness. 
but God is in the preaching business. God has always been preaching right from his first creation of the heavens and the earth. He was writing a sermon. The creation is a sermon that God was preaching and is preaching of his son. Eli and his house represented the law, just as we have taught that the the sun and the moon, they represent the testimony of the law. It's represented by the moon and the sun, the son of righteousness, Christ Jesus. So Eli and his house represented the law. They were Levites and God was preaching through them that the law ministry and as a covenant we will one day come to an end. He said this again, as we read earlier, First Samuel 3, 14. I have sworn, that's a testimony. I have sworn by myself. I have bound myself to the house of Eli. And his father's house, that is the house of Levi, that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. And God is a very practical teacher. He preaches more in story form than he does in writing. He determined to preach this sermon of the end of the law by taking Israel to war with the Philistines. So in 1 Samuel 4, Israel went to war against the Philistines and they were severely beaten. They were defeated and they wondered why the Lord had not given them victory over their enemies, the Philistines. The Philistines represented the testimony of sin against God's people. They were always causing Israel trouble. They had enslaved the Israelites. And Israel went to war. And like anybody who wants to go to war against sin by their own power or using the law, they always get a good spanking. They do they will get defeated, 100%. And so Israel thought to summon the help of the ark of God and they went again to war against the Philistines and for a minute the Philistines were scared to death. They're like, oh, they are bringing the ark of the Lord to kill us. And so they summoned all courage and being strengthened by God, they gave Israel another good beating. And thousands of men were killed of the Israelites. There was a great slaughter of Israel. And this also happened in First Samuel 4, verse 11. And this also happened in the wake of that defeat by the Philistines. First Samuel 4, verse 11 also, the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. They died. 
they were not taken to the ICU. They died. They were not taken to physical therapy with Katie. <laughs> they died. The ark of God was captured in this battle. And among the casualties of war were the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, who also died on the battlefield just as the Lord has spoken. In the capture of the ark of God was also the simultaneous bringing to an end the ministry of the sons of Levi and their father. Pay attention to that. God did not just fire them from the job and send them away on some cushy pension plan. He wanted them dead. Just as David wanted Uriah dead. And it is this matter that troubles the hearts of many that are yet to understand the relationship or the relation between law and the gospel. And how the redeemed relate to law. It bothers them. When the ark of God has been captured, that's a big event. Then the law must come to an end. This is what the prophecy is saying. This is prophetic preaching. It is not saying the law ended with Eli when he died. No, it is prophetic to some bigger event that is yet to come. Christ Jesus represented the testimony of the ark in the bigger picture. But there are elements there that will need some exposition. But the point is that when the Lord Christ Jesus was captured to be crucified, that also signaled the end of the ministry, the covenant of the law, as demonstrated or as was demonstrated by Caiaphas tearing his priestly garments. In other words, according to the law, he had fired himself from the priestly office because he was not supposed to do that according to the law. You were not supposed to tear your garments as a priest. Caiaphas tore his priestly garments in the condemnation of Jesus to be crucified, accusing him of blasphemy, but God preaching through that because a higher and better priest had arrived. Christ Jesus had taken the priesthood from the law to himself. There could not be two priests. There could not be two priesthoods once Christ has arrived. You can't have the priesthood of the law competing with the priesthood of Christ. Christ alone is the mediator between God and man. So when he shows up, the priesthood of the law must be retired. And so in the development of the story, in the capture of the ark and the death of the sons of Eli, a messenger came from the battlefield and brought the news 
to Eli about the capture of the ark of God and the death of his two sons. And that messenger who brings such a message from the battlefield was the picture of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who comes to declare the death of Christ and the end of the law. That's what the Holy Spirit comes to declare. He testifies of Christ. First Samuel 4, 18. When the messenger came, that it happened when he made mention of the ark of God, that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken and he died, for the man was old and heavy. Eli, old and heavy, the law, old and heavy on God's people, heavy laden, fell from his throne, fell from his seat. The law passing away as God had said it would. First Samuel 2.34. First Samuel 2, verse 34. Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons on Hophni and Phinehas. In one day they shall die, both of them. In one day. In one day the two sons and their father would kick the bucket. <laughs> they would die. And the one day is in reference to the cross. At the cross, the covenant of the law was terminated for something better. The new covenant in the blood of Christ. That's what he said he was going to do. He was going to enact a new and better covenant in his own blood. And as he had taught earlier, you cannot put new wine into old wine skins. And this is what people who want to continue with the law do not get. They think if Moses is dead, then God has no other means to breach the gap. So they see a gap. In their theological thinking, they see a void in Christ that they have to plug with Moses. That's the issue. That's the problem with their thinking. They have a Jesus problem. They do not see Jesus as totally sufficient in all things salvation. That's what they are saying. They see some deficiency, some shortfall, some hole in Christ that they have to cork with Moses. So you see them with the corking guns around Jesus trying to cork some imaginary holes that they see in Christ. But this is what God said he would do. First Samuel 2.35 God did not just say the sons of Eli are going to be killed. 
He said this. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house and he shall walk before my anointed forever. He shall do all that is in my heart and in my mind. And when the Lord Jesus came, he said, I always do that which pleases the Father. That is the priest in view. Even though you want to find some priests in between that may have been humanly considered as faithful, that's not what God was talking about. He was talking about Christ. So if God is raising this faithful priest, it means that the new priest is everything that God wants and needs and also is everything that you need, you and I. The priest who does all things according to what is in God's heart and mind. He knows God's mind too. There's no ordinary human priest who could know God's mind. So that is speaking to Christ. This priest pleases pleases God in every way. He is lacking in nothing. Because if he was lacking in anything, he would not be able to please God. And this anointed priest is the Lord Jesus. So, it is false, therefore, to say, the redeemed remain under the ministry of Eli and his two sons when God said, he will kill them and bring them to an end. And then God says, I am going to raise another one. The Lord Jesus has succeeded the ministry of the law and he is complete for his people. And these people are complete in him. He brings a complete ministry in and by himself. Okay. If Eli is dead, his two sons are dead. Who else must die? Now we enter Ichabod, First Samuel 4, starting from 19. Verse 4, from verse 19, now his daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, was with child, due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth, for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, do not fear, for you have born a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. The daughter of Eli represents the covenant of the law.
the covenant of the law is presented to us in her being married to the son of Eli and in the context of her pregnancy. If Eli and his two sons should come to an end, then something has to be born out of it. Another dimension of the gospel has to be introduced to us. Because the law just does not come to an end. Something has to be born out of it. The New Testament cannot be born if there is no anticipated death of the old. Eli's daughter could not have a C-section. She must be pregnant and she must die that a son may be born at the death of her husband and father-in-law, Ichabod, his name, to declare what has happened spiritually, that the glory of the law has departed. And Ichabod was not developed much by God because he was going to bring the testimony of Christ from another angle, but he represented the birth of the Lord Jesus. We're going to, in the next message, 1 Samuel 6, uh, title, the message is going to be titled, The Solution to the Ark Problem. God's Solution to the Ark Problem. But Ichabod was a picture of the birth of the Lord Jesus theologically. The law just does not die. It has to leave a witness. It has to birth someone greater than itself. The law was pregnant with Jesus. You have to understand this. <laughs> the law was pregnant with Jesus. And by that, I mean, it has to give birth to the testimony of Jesus. And that is why Jesus said to the Jews, you study the scriptures diligently. You study the law diligently because in them, you think you have eternal life, but it is they that are pregnant of me. They testify of me. The law was pregnant of material about Jesus. That's what that is saying. The law was pregnant of material about Jesus. And that means if you read the law correctly with the proper hermeneutic, and you do not get Jesus out of it, you have missed the point. Every time you go to the law, Jesus must be born out of your reading of it. <laughs> you must see the testimony of Jesus, in other words. If you read the law, 
and you do not see the glory departing from the law. You do not see Ichabod. You have not understood it. A lot of popes don't get it. The birth of Jesus was saying, Ichabod to the law. The glory has departed from the law. Now look to me. John the Baptist says, he must increase, I must decrease. The glory has moved. It is with him. He has the baton. Christ has the baton, not Moses. John in the boat, sleeping, was a picture of Jesus bearing the testimony of Christ hidden in the Old Testament. And so in the story, Jonah must be revealed to the mariners, to these sinners, for their salvation in the context of the tempest of the seas. From where he was sleeping, from where he was hidden, he must be revealed in the context of their salvation. Because Jonah says, oh, this has come upon you because of me. I'm the reason why you're in trouble. (laughs) You're in trouble of sin because of Christ. Because of his glory. Because he must be revealed in the context of your salvation from sin. That's some serious teaching. Jonah 1 verse 5. Jonah 1 verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid. And every man cried out to his God. So the mariners were idol worshippers. And threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the Lord. So the ship is sinking. And what is that saying? The salvation by works. By throwing away some things from your life to lighten the conviction of sin. I'm going to stop this. I'm going to stop that. I'm going to stop this. I'm going to lighten my Lord of sin by throwing it into the sea. (laughs) Hopefully this should stop it. That should make me attractive to God. Make me acceptable to God. But it was not good enough to stop the tempest of the seas. The tempest of God's judgment because God is he who had brought the judgment on them on account of Jonah. The Jonah who was sound asleep. Jonah 1.5 says in the second part of the verse, But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship. The lowest parts of the ship had lain down and was fast asleep. Jonah, with all this commotion, he's fast asleep. And that's Jesus in the boat, fast asleep with his disciples. Christ hidden in the Old Testament and seemingly fast asleep. Like he doesn't know what's going on. So as Jonah 
Christ will be revealed in the salvation of his people. Even from the Old Testament scriptures where he was hidden. Jonah hidden at the bottom of the ship. Is Christ hidden in the scriptures of the Old Testament? And Jonah says to the mariners, if you want this to stop, you pick me up and throw me overboard. Jesus comes and says, the son of man shall be lifted up. And then the son of Jonah, three days and three nights. So you see the intersection of Jonah and Christ. The Jews did not get it. And many in our day do not get it either. They exalt the law of a Christ. They don't see the Christ who is hidden, who is sleeping in the testimony of the law. Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Born of a woman, Christ was born under the law, that he may lift those who were born under the condemnation of the law out of it. And that was introduction. That was introduction. Now to our text, the Philistines and the Ark. I'm going to make some qualifying statements. People love David. They hate him when it comes to Uriah and Bathsheba because they don't get it. But generally, they love David. But you cannot understand David if you don't understand all this testimony because it's all building up to David. Because David is a type of Christ. One of the preeminent types of Christ in the Bible. So much that Christ is called the son of David. Even David according to either Ezekiel or Isaiah. So David is very important picture of Christ and you need all these little details to discover Christ in David accurately. Okay? First Samuel 5. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. The Philistines have the ark of God as a spoil of war, a trophy of conquest. And they are rejoicing and thanking their idol. And this is what they did. Verse 2, when the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon, and set it by Dagon. So they came to present their latest acquisition, <laughs> most prized spoil of war to their idol, to say thank you for delivering this and Israel into our hands. And this was their idolatry, ascribing their victory to a false God who could not even move or talk. 
There's none who gets victory in anything over anything if it does not come from God. None. God gives victory even to pagans. He does. In his rule of his creation, he gives victory even to people who do not know him. The Bible uses the language of, in such circumstances, he strengthens the hands of the enemies. He strengthens. If anybody goes to war with North Korea and they get beat by North Korea, God has given North Korea, has given, has strengthened its hand. It's not North Korea. You have to understand that. It's him who is ruling these things. But the one given victory does not necessarily know that it is the God of Israel who gave it to them. They don't know that. They will ascribe it to their own weapons, to their own planning, to their own military. And God does not mean salvation by that victory. The victory and salvation are not necessarily the same things. God is not meaning their salvation from sin. It's a temporary victory. He means, in the context of the Bible, he means to cause them more trouble later by the victory that he has brought them. Isaiah 10, to the Assyrians, the Assyrians were brought by God to punish his people Israel. The Assyrians were given victory by God. God says, they are the road of my indignation. But guess what? The Assyrians are too proud. You are ascribing your victory to your own power. I'm going to come and beat you up for it. <laughs> Verse 3 of First Samuel 5, and when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So the early worshippers of Dagon came to the place where Dagon was stationed early in the morning. That is say, Just because people are getting up early in the morning to do what they call worship, whatever it is, to pray does not mean they are worshipping the true God. Many are just going to the house of Dagon, even though they do it very early in the morning. But when the people of Ashdod came, they found that Dagon had fallen on his face to the earth before the ark of the God of Israel. Dagon, even though he is dumb, is deaf, is mute, lifeless, must submit to the true God, must worship the true God. He must fall. The God of Israel is the omnipotent one. He is the all-knowing one. He cannot be put in a box. 
He cannot be carried around. Nobody carries God around. He carries us around. In him, we move and live and have our being in him. He carries us around. We don't carry him in a box. He is no idol. And that's what he was teaching the Philistines. So what did the people do? So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. I thought that was funny. I thought that was too funny. The people did not get afraid. Maybe they did to some level. But they did not repent. They doubled down on their idolatry. They lifted their idol and set it in its place again. And this is what happens with many people who are religious. Well, these are religious people, but are unconverted. It doesn't matter how much you tell them the truth. Show them the truth. The very next day, the very next week, they'll get up early in the morning as it were. Take their Dagon, whatever version of Dagon they have, and set him in his place again. Again. In other words, they remain unrepentant. They still love their false religion, still love their false God. I chose Jesus. God chose me because I chose him. I can lose my salvation if I want. That's the teaching of the worshippers of Dagon, not the God of the Bible. So every Sunday, we continue to see the same thing being done from many pulpits across the whole world. The setting of Dagon in his place again and again with their conditional salvation. Conditional salvation is the theology of Dagon. It's not the theology of the God of, Bible, of, the God of Israel. Verse 4. First Samuel 5. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. That's the pedestal. Only Dagon's torso was left off it. So the next morning, they came back again, the early worshippers. <laughs> they came back again to find Dagon with more boo-boos. He had fallen on his face again before the ark of God. Now there was more damage to his torso. His head and both palms were broken off and only the fish part, the Dagon part, was left unbroken. And that was a systematic dismantling of the idol. And we, we need also to systematically dismantle the many idols of false religion. Cut off their palms <laughs> that are passing for the truth of the God of the Bible. Verse 5. Therefore neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. So at the sight of this, the people got afraid and stopped going into Dagon's temple. They were afraid 
and they did not dare bring some gorilla glue to fix him up. <laughs> if they had it, they probably would have attempted. But stop being going to the house of Dagon does not mean that they had repented to the truth. God had just increased the cost of paying homage to Dagon. I know a lot of people who stopped going to churches or to church because they learned that they don't have to tithe. And the church that they were going to was demanding that they tithe. So they stopped going. Problem is, they still have not understood or believed the gospel. Because ultimately, the issue of righteousness, of righteousness is not tithing or not tithing. It's God's righteousness in Christ. So people can stop doing things, all kinds of things, out of fear, out of ignorance, but remain unconverted as to the substance of the truth. That's my point. Okay. So these guys stopped going to the house of Dagon, but they still were unconverted. Verse 6. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. The hand of the Lord was heavy on the people, so what they thought was a victory turned out to be a disaster for them, a big disaster for them. God ravaged them and struck them with tumors. They got more than COVID-19. <laughs> they got some pestilence that caused tumors and hemorrhoids in them. A pestilence that we shall learn later in the next chapter that it was caused by mice. We're going to have a wonderful testimony from that. Verse 7. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us and Dagon our God. So the men of Ashdod did an accurate cause and effect Analysis. They tied their present predicament to the presence of the ark of God. And they concluded and said, This ark must not remain with us. His hand is hushed toward us and even our God, Dagon. They were even feeling sorry for their idol. They wanted to deliver their own God from the hand of the true God. Instead of their God fighting for them, they wanted to deliver him. And professing Christians are caught in the idolatry when they think that they could have 
delivered Jesus from the cross. When they feel sorry for Jesus. And say or think that salvation may have happened some other way other than the cross. That they accuse the Jews of putting Christ on the cross. To the point that they don't see the larger picture. That it was God behind it. That Jesus was not a helpless victim. Jesus was not overpowered. Jesus was not suffering from cosmic child abuse. He was 100% in charge of everything that was happening. He taught, what's his name? Pilate, that you have no power over me unless given you from above. He talked to the devil through Judas and said, whatever you do, keep it on schedule. Do it quickly. Don't miss the time. I have to be on the cross on this very Passover day. So get things moving. So Christ Jesus was not overpowered like what had happened to Dagon of the Philistines. He submitted himself to death. He said it himself in John 10 that I have this command from my father to take. He said, no, no one takes my life away from me. I give it of my own accord. I have this command from my father to take it down and to take it back up. I'm not a victim. Okay? So the Philistines realized that the problem with the ark was not the ark itself. It was he who was behind the ark, the God of Israel. And as long as the ark remained in their territories, people would continue to get sick and die. The Philistines were Gentiles according to the flesh. They too must know, they too must learn that you do not play games with the ark of God. They must be taught of God through plagues, through death, pestilence, that once the ark shows up in your midst, it must need atonement or else people are going to die. Once God shows up, when God came to Israel, he said, I'm going to teach you so that you can know the difference between the common and the uncommon things, which means the holy things. I, the Holy One of Israel, is in your midst. And this is how you're going to approach me. You're just not going to flip-flop your way towards me. You're going to need a high priest. You're going to need blood. You just don't show up. The Philistines don't know that. The ark shows up and people are dying. Verse 8. Therefore, they sent and gathered 
to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They convened an emergency meeting of the lords of the Philistines, the rulers, and asked a very important question. A question that is not being asked by many preachers in the gospel preaching. What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? Because if the question is not asked or is not correctly phrased, then the proposed solution will not address the problem with the ark to God's satisfaction. The question has to be asked. What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? What shall we do? What shall I do with my sin? Now that the ark of the God of Israel has come to me, it's coming to kill me. What shall I do with my sin? Something must be done. But by who? <laughs> and how? And what shall be done? And religion has many things, many proposals to answer the question. They will come and say, give money to it. Give money to the ark. Come and make a commitment to Jesus and your paycheck. Wake up and pray at three in the morning. Do your 10 day fast at the beginning of each year. Come and join our church and we'll baptize you. Weep for your sins. You should make it a habit of always weeping for your sins. Get some more long dresses. Stop watching TV. That Avatar movie is going to send you to hell. <laughs> Stop this and that. I'm not lying. You've heard it before. The question is, are these acceptable prescriptions to the problem that is being caused by the ark? Are they enough? Because if the solution is coming from us, it will never satisfy the question. It will never satisfy God. And here what they answered, verse 8, second part of it, let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of the God of Israel away. The lords of Ashdod thought, our problem can easily be solved if we have a new church building. <laughs> if we move it to a different city, different location, take it to Gath, change the zip code, change the address. And that is a prescription of false religion that does not understand the issue at hand. Verse 9. So it was after they had carried away that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. 
And he struck the man of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. So as soon as Ark arrived at Gath, a great destruction visited them. God struck the city and caused more tumors, caused more people to die. Which means what? Small and great means the ark is no respecter of persons or city. It's no respecter of age, of royalty, ethnicity. It is God's killing mission. That's the problem with the ark. It's God's killing mission. So what did the people of Gath, the city of Goliath, that's where Goliath came from. What did they decide to do with it? Verse 10. Therefore they sent the ark of God to Akron, Ohio. (laughs) So it was as the ark of God came to Akron that the Akronites cried out saying, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to save us. (laughs) No, to kill us and our people. Obviously, the news had been going around, given what they say. They have brought the ark of God to get us killed. They cried out. They are beginning to understand what the ark brings to a sinner. They understood what was coming. Death was coming. It was not salvation. They said they have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. Not to sanctify us. No, but to kill us. That's clear teaching. Let us expand our teaching and make some connections for understanding of what is happening. What was in the ark? We have to know the contents of the ark. The writer of Hebrews describing the makeup of the earthly sanctuary said this, Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9, 1 to 5. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all or the most holy place. So two main divisions. Which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold in which were 
the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. The ark of God was the ark of testimony or the ark of the covenant. It contained three articles. Number one, the golden pot that had manna. Remember, the manna was supposed to be collected daily. You're not supposed to buy a deep freezer and put more than a week's supply, more than a day's supply. God will kill you for that. It will go bad. But we have this manna that was in the Ark of the Covenant was not turning bad. That is Christ, Christ the pot that contained the manna and also the manna, because Christ is the bread from heaven. We had, number two, the tablet of stone, and that is the law, the two tablets of the law, representing the testimony of God the Father. And we had, number three, article Aaron's rod that budded. And that's coming from number 17. That's where you read the story. Miriam uh, wanted to exalt himself, uh, himself, sorry, over Moses and say, well, we all are holy. Why do you guys exalt yourself? So there was the Korah rebellion and God said, well, you tell Israel to bring 12 stuffs and leave them at the tent of meeting and come check them the next day. And the one that buzz is the one of whom I've chosen. So the next day, Aaron's rod had the almonds, it had leaves, it, it was alive. So Aaron's rod that budded, that's representing the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit in the resurrection of Christ. So the elements in the ark were Trinitarian. They represented the Father, represented by the law, the Son in the manner, the Holy Spirit's power in the bud, in the stuff that budded. Why? Because salvation is a Trinitarian enterprise that is focused on the Son. But what was causing death was not the manner. In the history of Israel, what caused them death was the law, the manner they ate. The rod of Aaron, they got water from a rock. It parted the seas. It was not the rod that budded that was killing them. It was not the bread from heaven that killed them. 
It was the tablets of stone, which Paul called the letter that kills. The ministry of death and condemnation. That's the law. So it has to be the law that was killing them. And what happens when the ark shows up? What happens when the law shows up? Adam died. Israel got in trouble. It begins killing. The soul that sins must die. Because in the ark was contained the law, the letter that kills. It is the law that was killing the Philistines. They did not have to understand it. God just kills them. And they come to their wits' ends as to what to do with the ark. What do we do with death? Essentially, that's what they're battling with. What do we do with this death? They know for sure that if the ark shows up, people will get tumors and many will die. Many do not understand that about the law. That once you bring back the law, people are going to die. That's the point. It's going to kill people. And this is not being taught in the pulpits. They are saying, get the law. <laughs> get the ark for your sanctification. Now you go and tell that to the Gentiles, to the Philistines of Ashdod, of Gath of Akron, and say, or oh, you take the ark for your sanctification and see if they will agree with you. They won't. They'll be like, you're mad. <laughs> you're crazy. What have you, what have you been smoking? Do you not see the death and destruction? Which church do you go to that teaches such foolishness? So God here is teaching. He's highlighting his holiness and the need of a mediator, the need of Christ, the need of sinless by something that kills. You're going to see it when we go to the next chapter. Verse 11, 1 Samuel 5. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. So they gathered all the high echelon of the Philistines the rulers of the Philistines, and say, this is the resolution. Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go back to its own palace. And when that happens, what happens? So that it does not kill us and our people. The ark must go back to its place. We can't remain under its power and its curse. And if that can be done, then it won't kill us in our people. And that was a correct assessment of the problem. But it was an incomplete statement 
it still was missing some very important pieces. For the ark just does not come and then go back to its place. Jesus does not just come and go back to God. There must be propitiation. There must be satisfaction to what was in the ark. The law must be satisfied. God's wrath must be satisfied. Otherwise, there's no removal of the curse. God's wrath cannot be removed, cannot be wished away without satisfaction for sin. It's not going to happen. The text says, for there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. It was severe. Very heavy. In other words, the killing was great. People were dying like flowers. And that is what the law brings, my dear friends. This is not grace that was killing them. (laughs) This was the law that was killing them. It brings the heavy hand of God. It brings distraction. It must be sent away. But through satisfaction. Verse 12. And the man who did not die was stricken with the tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Those who did not die immediately were stricken with tumors. In other words, they too were affected. They too were on their way to death. Those who did not die immediately, they still were affected by the judgment. So it affected everyone. Of the Philistines. And we're going to end this way. By going back to verse 11 of First Samuel 5. The text says, So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. The ark must go back to its own place. In other words, the law cannot go back to God unfulfilled. Christ cannot show up in Israel, in Palestine, and go back without passing through the cross. That is why the Lord Jesus came and said, For assuredly, that's Matthew 5, 18, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. It must be fulfilled for the curse to be removed, for the people to stop dying, for the condemnation to be removed. The Lord Jesus came that he may be the one to send the ark of God by the blood of his sacrifice. By way of redemption that is in his blood. We're going to see the ark going back to Israel. And there was nobody with the cattle, with the cows that were pulling the cart. 
they went by themselves and they knew exactly where to take it. They were gonna work the teaching of the typology because the cows were types of Christ. <laughs> they were taking the ark back to where it belonged. So the ark must be returned to God by way of fulfillment. The law must be fulfilled. That is the returning to God. It is not a physical movement, as it were. It is speaking to satisfaction through payment. Because we owe something to God, or we owe something to God, so we have to make the payment, we have to return, make the payment to him, and that's what Christ appeared to do. He came to make propitiation. He came to redeem us. And he was the redemption price. And God saw the labor of his soul, and he was satisfied. So anyone who wants to bring the ark back to you, by saying, we are still under the law, and come up with some seemingly intelligent things, and say, because it is the moral law, they do not realize that it is the very Ten Commandments that caused the Philistines a lot of trouble. It caused many people to be buried. The Philistines will not accept such teaching as legitimate. It's false teaching. Not in the experience of it. The law kills and Christ Jesus has fulfilled it and sent it back to its place by his obedience to death. That's God's gospel declaration. That is, that is the truth of the gospel. Christ Jesus is he who was qualified to take the law back to its place and thus to remove the condemnation, the curse that had befallen on the Philistines. Next, we talk about the solution as God proposed in the next chapter. Okay. Wonderful message. I pray God bless you. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for all that you have taught us this morning about the law, its ministry, and its expiration. Because something bigger, greater was going to be introduced by way of your faithful high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the testimony that the law kills. And yet, from the testimony of the Philistines, we have learned that the law, the ark, must be turned, must be returned back to God. And we know that the Lord Jesus Christ has returned the law by giving honor to it through his own obedience. He has satisfied your justice and your wrath. And now we walk not as those who are under pestilence, but as those who have been redeemed from the curse. We do not suffer from the pestilence, from the tumors that we cause because of our sin. We thank you, Lord, for the blessed hope that we have in Christ. We honor you, glorify you.
In Jesus' name, amen. Be praying for me tomorrow. I go to Cincinnati for the burial of my chemist friend. I'm going to be there pretty much all day, I believe. Um, pray for God's wisdom and for things to go well and for the Lord to help the family, the wife and the two sons and mother-in-law. Um, it's a terrible time to lose someone who was not really sick, sick, sick eight months ago. And before you know it, you're expecting another 20 years with them. And before you know it, they're gone. So God be praised for our life and for the life that he had. His eternal status, God knows, he knows now where he is. You can't speculate it anymore. But it's a wonderful thing to know what we know and to believe what we believe. Christ Jesus is our salvation. He is our righteousness and he is our life. Okay? So we'll see you next week. Lord willing, be praying. We'll be back. All right? Have a good day.